Greetings and welcome to episode 43 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about two internal peripheries uh, and the internal aliens um, that uh, Japan, the Tokugawa state, uh, gradually incorporated over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, I'm referring to Hokkaido and Okinawa. And I'm using the present day names, the, the names that would later, the Japanese names that would later get attached to these places. Um, they weren't originally called this. Uh, we'll get into the original names of these locations before, but we're more familiar with the names that they have today. Uh, Hokkaido being the uh, now seen as the fourth of the uh, home islands, the four home islands of the Japanese state today. Um, it's far in the north. And uh, Okinawa, uh, referring to a string of islands and archipelago that extends from Kyushu um, in the southwestern part, the southwestern island of Japan, all the way down to Taiwan at its southern tip. Um, why do we put these two um, topics together? Uh, well, they're unique in having both been integrated um, into the Japanese state. Um, they are culturally alien places that nonetheless were integrated without warfare. Okay, I'm not saying that wars never took place, there was never any violence or anything like that, um, but you don't have any sort of decisive war um, and, you know, grand formal uh, uh, takeover of the place where you say we have a new land um, and it's, uh, you know, an indication of the glory and expansion of our state. It was a much more muted, quiet affair, uh, not a whole lot of fanfare, and it took place, you know, the integration of these two locations took place over a couple hundred years. Okay. Um, when does the Japanese empire start? Well, that's actually sort of a subjective question. Um, does, the, does the Japanese empire begin when you incorporate your first culturally alien lands outside of the three original Japanese home islands of Honshu, Kyushu, and Shikoku? Um, well, I suppose you could make the case. You'll just have to redefine what you mean by an empire and uh, what actually constitutes the creation of an empire. Most historians, though, we refer to the 50-year the empire of Japan, and the date that we use uh, to mark the beginning of the empire is 1895. And there's a reason for that, uh, because most people like to see the beginning of, you know, proper, modern, European-style imperial conquest as something that occurs directly from a big, grand, formal declaration of war, followed by the signing of treaties and paperwork and war indemnities and whatnot, um, and handing over a big chunk of territory to the victor. Um, and that's what finally happens in 1895 after the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, they get the big chunk, the island of Taiwan, um, and then they would eventually lose Taiwan. Uh, one other thing to sort of keep in mind when you're trying to think about, you know, what is Japan? What was the Japanese Empire? Were these places integral parts of Japan uh, back then? What are they today? Uh, think about the fact that after the empire is uh, defeated in 1945 and it is dismembered by the victors, chiefly the United States, um, what is constitutes Japan according to their definition? Uh, they're saying, all right, the empire is delegitimized. Uh, you're not going to keep everything that you had. Uh, but where do we? Where? How far back do we look? to uh, identify the initiation of delegitimate conquest that was morally dubious from their perspective, uh, doling out victor's justice. 
And they would, you know, look back and say, uh, Okinawa, Hokkaido, uh, I'm not so sure about these places. Uh, they seem more or less uh, fairly Japanese to us, but there's all, they're also clearly, they have some sort of culturally alien element to it as well. Um, and the integration took place earlier than uh, things like Taiwan and the 20th century conquest. And they also couldn't put their finger on, you know, a major decisive war and treaties and this sort of stuff, um, which usually is what they think about when they're thinking about, you know, uh, adding and subtracting uh, territorial elements to an empire. Um, and so Hokkaido, there wasn't a whole lot of question about it. They all said, yeah, we don't see many Ainu people, the indigenous people. We, we, we don't see many Ainu around here. It's mostly Japanese. This is clearly a part of the Japanese state now. Uh, you know, not even just the empire, the Japanese state. Uh, Okinawa, uh, you know, keep this in the back of your mind because we're going to uh, revisit Okinawa in the future. We're not really going to have cause to re revisit Hokkaido after, to, after this episode. But uh, o Okinawa uh, will play an interesting role, and its legacy is a little bit more thorny. Um, and the U.S. will decide that uh, it's going to occupy uh, Okinawa, uh, formally separate from the Japanese state, for a good number of years after 1945. Um, and there's much debate, heated debate, over whether or not Okinawa was seen to be truly Japanese or not. Is this something that we should give back to Japan or not? Was it part of an imperialist conquest? Um, anyways, keep these issues in the back of your mind because uh, we're going to re uh, revisit them many episodes down the road when we're dealing with the legacy of the Japanese empire. All right, now let's move on. First, we're going to talk about Hokkaido, uh, and then we're going to talk about Okinawa. All right, and then after that, we will be all set to, to sort of talk about uh, the Japanese Empire proper, uh, the ideologies that accompanied it, and the actual territorial conquest of new lands and how they were incorporated. Let's begin with our overview of Hokkaido. Now, Hokkaido is not going to be controlled by a central government based on the island of Honshu. That's the biggest, most important uh, uh, of the, the three original Japanese home islands. Uh, Hokkaido will not be governed by a Honshu central government until 1802. Okay, Before 1830, Japanese maps, maps produced on the three Japanese islands, uh, did not even typically include Hokkaido um, on their maps. And when they did, it was usually just a very crude amoeba shape that was totally inaccurate. All right, bear very little resemblance to what the island actually looked like. How was it referred to? Well, the original name in Japanese was not Hokkaido. All right, uh, the original name was Izochi, uh, with the kanji for uh, uh, the Chinese characters that were borrowed to express the Japanese pronunciation of Izochi, um, literally meant barbarian land. All right, where we should be quite familiar uh, with the Confucian uh, pretensions to uh, civilization and everyone outside of your civilizational orbit is referred to as a barbarian. Um, and so the people of, uh, of, of this northernmost island were, you know, just openly referred to as barbarians and the land itself was just just known as Land of the Barbarians. Azo was barbarian, and Chi was land, Azochi, <laughs> the, the barbarian lands. Um, and it's not just that. The Chinese characters, the kanji used to express this term, uh, is even more pejorative. Uh, within the character itself, you have the um, uh, a radical element, an element of the character, is the uh, radical that represents insects. 
Right? So it's not just that you're a human barbarian. Uh, to express that term, they even use a Chinese character that includes an element that refers to insects, uh, almost subhuman. Uh, Hokkaido is a name that will be adopted later in the 19th century, um, and that just means the Northern Sea Circuit, circuit being an administrative term, sort of like, you know, a collection of counties or prefectures, uh, the Northern Sea Circuit, because it's in the north, uh, a very prosaic uh, name, nothing really all that special about it. Um, today, uh, Hokkaido represents the furthest northern extent of the Japanese state, but that too is a recent transformation implemented in 1945. Uh, previously, if we're not talking about huge chunks of lands, uh, Japan had the Kuril Islands. The Kuril Islands sort of extend uh, northeast uh, uh, from Hokkaido. Um, and uh, sort of, you know, getting their way closer to Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. Um, and those were originally a part of Japan, uh, islands that they had taken over the course of the 50-year empire, and that Russia immediately, uh, you know, imposing victor's justice said, we want these islands uh, today. And so actually, the uh, most southernmost Kuril Island, you can see Hokkaido from it. Um, and if you pay attention to these sort of issues in political science and international relations and whatnot, sometimes you'll see dissatisfaction from Japanese diplomats that Russia uh, has visual um, uh, uh, confirmation of what's going on on Hokkaido from the, their perch on the southernmost of the Kuril Islands. Um, but that would have been seen as a natural extension of Hokkaido back when the Japanese had it. Now, uh, brushing politics aside, ecologically, from an ecological perspective, Hokkaido is part of what we might refer to as a larger Amur Basin ecosystem. The Amur River, uh, sort of in northeastern Manchuria on the mainland, so, you know, southern Siberia, um, you know, north of Korea, sort of today, the northeastern border of China, that region. All right. Um, we might think of as the Amur Basin ecosystem. And all throughout this ecosystem, you have culturally and linguistically related peoples. Um, well, they fought with each other and whatnot. But from a cultural perspective, they were seen as a coherent group who had a similar type of livelihood, and although their languages could still be mutually unintelligible, they're related languages. Uh, clearly, they uh, all evolved from a similar linguistic ancestor. Um, what sort of uh, lands does the Amur Basin ecosystem include, of which uh, Hokkaido was a part? Um, well, the island of Sahalin. Uh, Sahalin is an island that is uh, sort of the next island to the north, a uh, large island, not those tiny Kuril islands, large, um, vertical, sort of narrow island that is uh, uh, to the north of Hokkaido. If you keep going in that direction, uh, you'll find the island of Sahalin. Uh, Sahalin will also be a territory that during the Japanese Empire, they would go further north and they would have that uh, the southern half of that island as well. They would refer to it as Karafuto. Um, again, after World War II, uh, the entire island of Sahalin will be taken over by the Russians. Um, so again, during the Japanese Empire, they wouldn't even have regarded Hokkaido as their northern northernmost uh, uh, territory. That would have been the southern half of the island of Sahalin, which they no longer have anymore. Um, you also have northeastern uh, Manchuria, uh, the northeastern part of China today. That would be part of the Amur uh, Basin ecosystem. Uh, much of eastern Siberia, the Kuril Islands, and Kamchatka, uh, the last very familiar to anyone who's ever played a game of risk and realized that you have to conquer Kamchatka if you want to have all of Asia. Very unrealistic uh, to think you're going to be marching to an army of 20,000 people through Kamchatka in the winter. All right. What sort of livelihoods did these people in the Amur Basin ecosystem engage in? Uh, fishing, hunting, and uh, trade with distant markets.
All right, a little bit of farming perhaps as well, but a lot of it uh, is sort of hunting and fishing, uh, 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 the gathering of pelts and furs and selling these uh, pearls and selling these to distant markets as luxury goods. Now, today we're going to be talking about two major themes. The first, how the Ainu became, uh, the Ainu, the indigenous inhabitants of Hokkaido, how the Ainu became destitute and dependent on Honshu Island and not the other way around. Why was it one way and not the other? And then two, how the island of Hokkaido changed from being regarded as a barbarian land to being regarded as an integral part of Japan. As we all, as we shall see, the best analogy is to indigenous peoples uh, in much of the places that were colonized by Europeans in the course of the last 400 years or so. Uh, you know, the Native Americans of North America, uh, the, the uh, uh, Aborigines of Australia, um, all of these people um, would end up uh, being impacted by the arrival of Westerners in a very similar way. And uh, here we're not dealing with Westerners, we're dealing with Japanese settlers, but the relationship, the economic relationship, the biological relationship with disease um, will be quite similar to what people in uh, analogous situations experienced elsewhere in the world. All right, now let's, we've gotten the bird's eye perspective. Let's get into the nitty gritty details. We begin with the Matsumai Monopoly, the Matsumai family. Um, substantial inroads from people who were based on the main island of Honshu began with the rise of the Tokugawa state, founded in the year 1600. From, uh, starting in about 1604, from 1604 to 1799, basically the first 200 years of the Tokugawa state. A family known as the Matsumai family, M-A-T-S-U-M-A-E, the Matsumai family obtained what was uh, called a charter, obtained a charter from the shogun in Edo to control and regulate trade with Ezochi with the Azo, the barbarians in the barbarian lands. Uh, the family of Matsumai established their, their own town and built a castle, you know, with a wall, a castle town, on the southern tip of Ezochi, of Hokkaido, all right, as close as you can get to the island of Honshu, but still separated by water. Um, this would become known as the choke point for all traffic to and from Ezochi. Okay, the town itself would simply take the name of the family that founded it and had built a Fukuyama castle in the town. Uh, the town itself would become known as Matsumai Town. Um, now, Fukuyama Castle uh, in Matsumai Town uh, would sometimes be described as a portal to barbarian lands, um, and it would be seen in, in a, a similar way to how uh, Satsuma in the southwestern uh, uh, island of Kyushu would be seen as a portal to the barbarian lands of Okinawa, uh, how the island of Tsushima would be seen as a portal to Korea, um, uh, that, that's an island between Korea and um, uh, Kyushu and Honshu, um, and so Matsumai is seen uh, also similarly. It's you know this is the transition zone in which you go to meet people who are usually regarded as inferior to yourself, and you're doing it for commercial purposes. Now the Matsumai commercial monopoly was similar to charters that you might be more familiar with that were uh, granted to various East India companies, the Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company. Why would the chief political power, whether it's the Queen of England um, or the the shogun in Edo, the Tokugawa shogun in Edo, why would they grant a piece of paper that uh, uh, gives permission to one family to have a monopoly over relations with uh, what are regarded as barbarian inferior peoples? 
Um, well, it's beneficial to all to both of the parties that are involved uh, in issuing that charter. What's essentially going on here is the central government, the distant central government, uh, doesn't want to get entangled in local issues and all the problems and uh, you know extraction of resources and whatnot. They say, you know what, this place is really distant. It looks a little hostile. We don't know what's going to happen there, and we have no real effective means of keeping tabs on day-to-day -day operations there. Uh, all we really want is uh, we want to get some revenue. Okay, uh, we want you if you if you end up making a lot of money there, uh, we want you to be able to send some of that money back to us. What do you get in exchange for this right? We will make sure no other family, no other company is able to challenge you. You'll get a monopoly in this dangerous uh, uncertain enterprise, and we will ensure that no other uh, people from our domain, at least from people we have political control over, uh, that they will not be able to challenge you in your uh, risky endeavor. All right. Um, what does that family get in return? All right. First, they get the monopoly. They know this is ours uh, to succeed or to fail. We'll do it on our own merits. No one else is going to get involved, at least not our own rivals from our homeland. Um, you assume all the risk yourself. Okay. But if shit really does hit the fan and something horrible goes down and you get involved in a war, there's a good chance that the central government will be willing to send some forces to rescue you, all right? Not necessarily. They're still going to debate it, and maybe they'll say, uh, no, we're not doing this. You brought this on yourself. We're not going to help you out. But if everyone's profiting, all right, if the Matsumai family is profiting, if the Shogun is saying, hey, I have to do almost nothing, and I get this great tax revenue skimmed off the top of Matsumai profits and their trade with the Ainu on Izochi, um, you know, maybe I will. If they have one little skirmish with the barbarian natives, uh, okay, I'll send some troops, I'll send some help uh, to uh, resolve this incident, and then we'll all get back to making a lot of money. All right, so it sort of benefits both the Matsumai family and the Shogun. They both get, um, uh, you know, the, the prospect of profit, in one case huge profit, in one case a smaller amount of profit, um, with the prospect of state security as well, and maybe we'll intervene to help you um, if you mess everything up and you have to go to war with the locals. That is what happened in one of the more famous wars in 1669, a war known as the Shakushain's War, uh, Shakushain being the name of one of the Ainu chiefs who ended up getting involved in uh, a, a, a military engagement with the Matsumai family over a trade dispute, access to certain resources and whatnot. Uh, they were unhappy with uh, Matsumai being the sole middleman. They wanted to subvert the Matsumai clan and trade directly with other families in Honshu, uh, went to war, and Edo decided to actually send reinforcements. Okay, um, That is what you get when you issue one of these charters. Uh, the Matsumai family knows that uh, if we really need them, Edo, the shogun, will probably come to our help um, if we need it. Now, um, though Ainu were considered to be barbarians by the Japanese, they were more familiar, what we might think of as inner barbarians. And these were distinguished from the outer barbarians uh, and, the, and their actual terms in Japanese. Uh, Chinese had the exact same thing. They would have things, uh, inner barbarians, outer barbarians, cooked barbarians, uh, uncooked barbarians, uh, all kinds of distinguishing terms uh, that usually just show your uh, degree of proximity and uh, uh, um, uh, familiarity familiarity with the central culture of uh, whatever state that we're talking about. Um, so the uh, uh, Ainu were seen as more familiar inner barbarians, all right? They weren't the same from the, out, uh, the outer barbarians, such as the Europeans, who are referred to as the outer barbarians. Uh, Filipinos, 
the Philippine Islands to the south of Taiwan. Uh, it's not that much farther from Okinawa. Um, people who are referred to as Cyclops people, uh, people who are referred to as fish people. When you go back to the old records, you find all these what to us appear to be humorous references to people who we think this must be mythological. <laughs> Cyclops people, uh, yes, Europeans were in the same category as people with one eye um, who are regarded as more unfamiliar uh, outer barbarians. Um, now Matsumai, the Matsumai family, uh, would uh, set itself up sort of uh, as its own uh, center of a tribute system with the Ainu. They held rotating tribute audiences from various Ainu tribal chiefs. And this was a privilege. It was seen as a privilege that was granted to uh, uh, more loyal, docile, uh, cooperative Ainu tribes. Uh, you work with us, you don't fight us, you don't kill our men, um, and you trade peacefully with us and allow us to take our profit, um, we will give you special privileges. You can come and have a tribute audience, and then we'll treat you better than other Ainu chieftains who don't uh, interact with us on such uh, amicable terms. This was also a privilege that would be denied to outer barbarians as opposed to inner barbarians. Um, the Ainu were viewed also as being under the reins, sort of, they would say, we have a loose rein control over these barbarians um, that are on the fringes of the Tokugawa state. Even Matsumai itself sometimes, here's the kicker, even Matsumai itself sometimes was seen as occupying the fringe of uh, uh, refined, cultivated Japanese culture. Uh, some other uh, daimyo families that would come from Honshu, Kyushu, and Shikoku, when they visited uh, uh, Fukuyama Castle and they visited the town of Matsumai, um, they would say, you know what, uh, yes, we recognize that they're more Japanese than not, but they also are in need of considerable refinement. Um, and I'm not so sure that it's a one-to-one -one correlation. The Matsumai family is the same as, uh, you know, as civilized as us. The Matsumai family uh, was also not always included in official uh, shogun-produced lists of legitimate daimyo. Remember those uh, domains, over 250 daimyo throughout the Japanese islands, um, and they had different arrangements uh, with the shogun that were uh, not the same as arrangements that he had with other daimyo. They might he might have you know different tax expectations, things you could and could not do, and whatnot. The rules would be different for Matsumai. Um, so it's you know it's it's located kind of on the fringe. You know, they're they're seen as a part of Japanese culture, but because they deal with barbarians and they're physically located on the island of Ezochi, um, there's something a little off about them. They're there's something a little different about the Matsumai family. And the Matsumai family was happy to uh, uh, encourage this sense of difference because it gave them a considerable sense of autonomy. Sometimes the head of the Matsumai clan would, uh, would style himself, quote, the great king of Eizo, <laughs> uh, the king of the barbarians. Okay, uh, that's a really grandiose title. I can assure you that the um, daimyo, the head of the clan of the Satsuma daimyo, if he were to declare himself the king of something or the Choshu daimyo, the king, uh, they would be getting a strongly worded message from the shogun in Edo, uh, followed by a swift sword to the neck. All right. Now, what is the, re the uh, relationship of uh, economic trade um, and the back and forth with the Ainu? As you said before, this is not so much a military conquest of Hokkaido as an economic conquest. There are very few wars in the history of Hokkaido, with that one exception being the Shakushan's War in 1669. But even that war, uh, it doesn't sort of follow the model of what we might think of as this war of resistance of us versus them, clearly defined ethnic 
ethnic group versus another clearly defined ethnic group. Um, the Matsumai family fought Shakushane's tribe with the help of other Ainu tribal allies. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say that it's Japanese versus Ainu. Shakushine did not represent all the Ainu tribes, and they were not all on his side. Uh, many of them fought against him on the side of the Japanese. So it's quite messy. Um, and this, again, is probably another reason why we don't think of the in, uh, incorporation of Hokkaido in the same way we think of things like Taiwan or Korea, um, in which you win a battle and you clearly kick out another power, and now this is all ours. Um, and it is clearly us versus them. Now, the economic dimension of all this is that the central issue was who controlled access to the thriving consumer markets of Honshu Island and then, of course, beyond that. This is a clash of livelihoods. You have a sedentary state supported by dense agricultural wealth, that's the Japanese island, that's Honshu, versus a thinly populated subsistence hunting and fishing economy um, that doesn't produce a whole hell of a lot of more resources than are necessary to sustain the population. Hokkaido can be a fairly harsh climate. Uh, surviving there is not easy. Uh, the island is uh, not originally conducive to intensive agriculture of the sort that you're going to see on the other Japanese islands. All right, it's going to take a while and be very difficult for the Japanese to fully colonize and settle Hokkaido. Um, now, once Japanese markets to the south see a consumer value in the natural resources of Ezochi, um, a market-based cash economy is going to gradually replace the subsistence barter economy that had previously uh, taken root for so many uh, centuries, perhaps thousands of years, um, on Hokkaido. And a new relationship will form once this take, takes place. The Japanese will view the Ainu and their land in terms of a cash profit, while the Ainu will become dependent on sedentary food, the food products of a sedentary agricultural population, um, and the consumer products that the thriving markets of Honshu uh, ultimately produce. Okay, The problem with all this is that a profit-driven market economy, which the Japanese are bringing, will exploit the natural resources of Hokkaido until they are gone. This then, in turns, pre uh, this then in turn precludes the possibility of the Ainu returning to a non-agricultural subsistence economy based largely on hunting and fishing. Once those resources are gone, they're gone. And you need now a new basis for your economy. What's the new basis for your economy? Uh, the same basis that the Japanese have. Uh, you got to become farmers. Um, but this land wasn't really uh, set up for intensive farming of the sort that they have on the Japanese islands to the south. You don't have any real economic leverage or resources with which to farm uh, or the protection of a state. You have no plan B. All right, You can't really feed or clothe yourselves anymore once the natural resources are largely gone. All you have is non-renewable cash to spend at Matsumai-controlled markets for Japanese manufactured goods. And these goods replace the, previous, uh, the previously self-subsistence-based resources. So now, once this, tra this economic transformation takes place, and it's a transformation that occurred almost everywhere where indigenous peoples, uh, sparsely settled uh, indigenous peoples, uh, encountered Europeans uh, elsewhere in the New World mostly, but also Australia, 
Um, then your only choice is to enter the uh, settlers society at the bottom of the totem pole. You have to enter Japanese society at the bottom of the totem pole or starve without access to Japanese markets. Okay, whatever profit you made from selling your furs, from selling the meat, uh, from selling the fish, uh, from mining uh, the the, uh, mountains or drying up the rivers to get the the precious metals in the riverbed, um, those are non-renewable sources of income. And now once they're gone, you have to live like the Japanese live, uh, but start from scratch without the support of the state and compete with Japanese settlers who are supported by the state. In other words, you're screwed. Okay, um, so initially, what did Matsumai want? They wanted hunting commodities. They wanted the pelts, the furs of bears, of otters, of deer. Eventually, their export interests diversify, um, and you see that they are interested in uh, uh, tobacco. Uh, they're interested in rice that can be grown in certain parts of, of Hokkaido. Rice grown in Hokkaido was seen as especially uh, good to create the Japanese alcoholic beverage of sake. Um, they wanted to get ab- abalone, herring, kelp, firewood, uh, fishery products, all of these sorts of things. Um, the boom keeps demanding, uh, keeps growing, and by the year 1739, you know, 140 years or so after the Tokugawa state has been founded and, uh, you know, basically 140 years after Matsumai got its monopoly to deal with the uh, land of Izochi, uh, Matsumai has 53 trading posts throughout the island. Okay, this obviously will lead to the exhaustion of these resources. A good description of uh, sort of this relationship of Matsumai with the local people and how it changed the nature of the economy. We can see in a quote from a a Japanese physician uh, uh, living in Edo in the 19th century who had visited Hokkaido. He says, quote, now the Ainu, when the winter fishing months end, tour the deep mountain recesses to seize hibernating bears or deer, fox, river otter, marten, eagles, and other animals, as well as seal and sea lion that come out onto the beach. This becomes their livelihood. These goods are brought to the trading post and traded for rice, sake, tobacco, cotton, and needles and thread. All right, see what's going on here. They're saying the Ainu, this is by the 19th century, this is fairly late in the game, the Ainu had been driven to go kill hibernating bears. They can't even wait anymore for bears after they wake up. All right, you're actually, uh, you know, you're clearly exploiting your resources far beyond what you previously thought was acceptable uh, to meet this market demand. Now they're killing hibernating bears, sea lions that come out onto the beach. What are they trading these things for? They're brought to the trading post and traded for rice, sake, tobacco, cotton, and needles and thread. Manufactured goods that are non-renewable. Once those are gone, once you've smoked that tobacco, once you've drunk that sake, once you've eaten that rice, you have to go back to the trading post and buy it again. And you have to use cash or bring, you know, bear pelts. Well, the bears are all gone now. You're screwed. You don't have any money. And the settlers have the upper hand. They own all the resources. You're going to become impoverished. You're going to be depressed. You're going to get addicted to sake, which is going to happen. Alcohol will be a major problem in all indigenous communities that are affected like this throughout the world. Uh, Many of the Ainu will become addicted to sake um, and fall to the lowest rung of the new uh, Japanese-oriented society that takes root on Hokkaido. All right. Um, By the year 1800, the Ainu, uh, all the various Ainu tribes are completely dependent on the trade with Matsumai. 
All right, and not just for subsistence, but also for things that would have once been seen as luxury goods, but now they're seen as absolute necessities, things like sake, which the people have gotten addicted to now. Okay. Um, now, the last vestiges of Ainu autonomy had already disappeared over the course of the 18th century, over the 1700s, and what we refer to as sort of a mini gold rush. Uh, the Tokugawa state actually found that uh, the outside world, when they started trading with it, when the Portuguese and Spaniards and Dutch and whatnot, uh, when they traded with the Chinese and Koreans, they found that uh, the outside world didn't really see a ton of value in the sort of products that they could get from Japan, except for precious metals. I said, okay, uh, there was little else that the rest of the world wanted, but which they couldn't get easier in China without all the hassle, the hostility, and the restrictions, and the decentralized government. Uh, but once they discovered that uh, gold can be mined um, in the riverbeds of Hokkaido, this will then uh, deplete one of the last final resources that the Ainu had turned to, uh, which is the salmon and the fish that run in the rivers of Hokkaido. Uh, let me read you a quote from a Portuguese missionary who observed local mining operations. Their way of extracting gold from these mines is as follows. When they have decided on the mountain range in which, according to experts, there ought to be gold, friends and acquaintances get together and purchase from the lord of Matsumai a certain length of the river. They then divert the flow of water along a different course and dig into the sand which remains until they reach the living stone and rock beneath the riverbed. And in the sand are lodged in the rents and fissures of the rock, they find gold, gold as fine as beach gravel. And the Ainu are doing this themselves. And they actually, by now, they've lost much of their land as well uh, to the Matsumai clan, which has the upper hand in all economic negotiations, has all the leverage. Uh, note in that quote how they accurately describe that the Ainu tribes, desperate to find some sort of new income to trade for non-renewable products that they get from uh, the Matsumai trading post, they then also have to buy the portion of the river that they're going to mine, that they're going to divert and dry up and then mine. Um, and if they are lucky enough to find gold, their family will survive for a few more years, perhaps. Uh, but again, that gold's not going to last forever. Um, and you're not going to get renewable products in return. Okay, uh, you can see this is not going to end well. Now, the nail in the coffin is geopolitical pressures. Why, you ask, couldn't the Ainu just turn to another market in the north or west? After all, culturally and materially similar peoples live all throughout the Amur River Basin. Didn't we talk about the Amur Basin ecological reason? Why do they have to go to Matsumai if the terms aren't working out for them? The problem is that every other part of the Amur Basin is also being encroached upon by an expanding market backed by a powerful metropolitan government uh, you know, that is somewhere more distant. The Russians are advancing from the west and from the north, from Siberia, from Kamchatka, from the Kuril Islands, uh, Han and Manchus under the Chinese state, the Qing Dynasty, are arriving from Manchuria in the southwest. And thus the livelihood of the neighboring peoples who are similar to the Ainu on Hokkaido are being transformed in exactly the same way as the lives and economy of the Ainu are being uh, transformed. Now, it's not just that uh, all, all, all of these people are constrained uh, by uh, in encroaching settlers and encroaching governments that want their resources and don't give you a, a renewable product in return and make you dependent on their products. Uh, it's not just that. These encroaching settlers are also in political competition with one another. 
Okay, um, and in the case of the Ainu on Hokkaido, Japanese knowledge, knowledge uh, uh, that the shogun receives in Edo of growing Russian and Chinese expansion will prompt the Tokugawa state to take direct control over Hokkaido. The shogun receives reports that Qing rulers in Beijing, Qing emperors in Beijing, are giving titles to uh, uh, chiefs on the island of Sahalin just north of Hokkaido. That's pretty close to Hokkaido. And Ainu chiefs on Sahalin are also making tribute ships to Beijing. What? They're going, you know, just north of Izochi, our, our own barbarian land, uh, which we thought Matsumai had full control over. Uh, culturally similar peoples are going all the way to Beijing to receive formal titles from the emperor in exchange for their trade relationship. Um, this is alarming to the shogun. Maybe Matsumai doesn't have as tight a control over all this as we thought. In 1799, the shogun re 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 received secret reports of Russian traders who have penetrated Izochi itself, the island, Matsumai's domain. And this is decisive. At this point, when they hear that Russians are actually on the island of Izochi, they say, all right, no more Matsumai monopoly, no more of this indirect uh, 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 relationship with the island. Uh, it's threatened now by, barbar by new barbarians who are more powerful than the barbarians were trying to exploit. And in 1809, Ezo is put directly under the control of the Edo shogunate. Uh, Ezochi is renamed Hokkaido, the Northern Sea Circuit, because at that time it really is the furthest northern circuit um, in the Tokugawa state, even though later they'll acquire Sahalin for a little while. And it's put under what becomes known as the Hakodate Prefectural Government, all right, within the orbit of a prefecture on the northern end of Honshu Island. The bottom line is clear. By the first decade of the 19th century, Hokkaido is now a part of the Tokugawa state. Um, Japanese settlers are treated like farmers and any other of the daimyo throughout the island, and they have a major upper hand in order to push aside what few remaining economically impoverished uh, sake-addicted Ainu still remain on the island. Um, lots of inducements and perks uh, to encourage the samurai class, which is largely troublesome and parasitic by this point. They encourage a samurai class to go to Hokkaido and settle and cultivate the wastelands. It's not easy. It's not easy. That's why the Ainu didn't do it in the first place. That's why you don't already have intensive agriculture, because it's really hard to do on Hokkaido in that climate. Uh, but now you're going to have economic incentives to sort of export your troublesome uh, overpopulation problem and uh, economic parasites like samurais. You go there um, and see if you can do this, and we'll give you some support and political backing uh, if you're able to do that. The few remaining Ainu populations, um, and remember, they were sparsely settled to begin with, so just from a pure demographic point of view, um, it's going to be really hard uh, for the Ainu to resist the encroachment of Japanese settlers who are seemingly endless. Um, the Ainu populations are put under various, you know, quote-unquote, development or protection agencies. Um, the previous Ainu livelihood, from the Japanese perspective, was seen as barbaric and backwards. Um, and so the, the government agencies tasked with their uh, 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 governance um, will assume that the salvation of the pitiful Ainu people, uh, the only way you, that, that you could save them was to assimilate them to Japanese norms. Because, of course, it's self-evident, right? To be Japanese and live like the Japanese is the best thing in the world. Uh, so clearly, uh, success is measured by how much we can assimilate them to becoming Japanese. We're doing them a favor. Same attitude that you see in North America with the Indians, Aborigines, and Australia. 
All right. Um, so many Ainu will be reduced to working in Japanese-controlled fisheries, Japanese-controlled mi uh, mining companies, um, or debased service industries for Japanese settlers. Whatever you can do to scrape together a living. All right. Um, the, later in the 19th century, the uh, government will pass what's known as the Hokkaido Former Natives Protection Act, in which they will basically say uh, the only path, the only road of hope for the Ainu now, these poor, pitiful barbarians that we've inherited, um, is to try to turn them into farmers um, like the Japanese. Um, and so you'll finally get some state support for um, uh, you know, helping them undertake agriculture. But at that point in the late 19th century, it's far too late. All the, anything that was even remotely cultivatable into intensive far land has already been taken over by settlers from Honshu over the past hundred years or so. Um, and the Ainu are gonna find it very, very hard um, to survive. Okay, um, and you know, as part of all this as well, you get the same things that you see in North America and Australia. You'll see, you know, Japanese language schools will, will be set up, welfare, uh, welfare programs, um, all of which are designed to assimilate the Ainu into a better Japanese future. Disease will also be a factor. The Russians will introduce smallpox. The Japanese will introduce syphilis. Both of these are, uh, will hinder population growth. From 1807 to 1854, the Ainu population will decline. It was already very small to begin with. By 1807, it was estimated there's only 26,000 Ainu who live in Hokkaido. That's not a whole lot. I mean, you have millions of people on the Japanese island, tens of millions of people, uh, 26,000 Ainu for all of Hokkaido. Uh, by 1854, it's been reduced to under 20,000, 17,800, and the remaining ones are seen as pitiable or contemptible. Uh, some people would even take the same attitude that they had toward the you know, indigenous peoples elsewhere. Uh, you can't save them. Uh, you need to exterminate them. It's almost doing a favor. Their lives are so miserable uh, that we should, you know, they, they, shouldn't, they should cease to exist anymore. Okay. Uh, but generally speaking, most people in power would say we have a civilizing mission uh, toward the Ainu. Um, but, you know, today you go to Hokkaido. Good luck. Uh, if you're thinking, you know, hey, this is the indigenous land of the Ainu. Good luck trying to find an Ainu. Uh, there's very, very few. And of course, like with indigenous peoples everywhere, your population is so small. The best lands have been taken over. You also have long intermixed with the settlers as well. Um, and so many of them, uh, you know, if you're talking about like, you know, what quarter percentage are you of Ainu or, you know, what percentage are you, uh, it's probably going to be a pretty minuscule percentage to begin with, which further complicates things and uh, contributes to that gray, that, that gray area. All right, now let's move on to our other uh, internal alien that was gradually integrated without any sort of major uh, war, whether or not you want to slap the label imperialist on that war, uh, Okinawa. All right. Now, Okinawa is a later term that's going to be put as the Japanese word for the prefecture that will eventually be imposed on the uh, southern half of the archipelago. Okay. The original name is also an outsider's name. Right? Same with Izochi. We don't really have a one unified name that the people who originally lived there gave to that land. Uh, it hasn't survived in historical records. So in the case of Hokkaido, it probably never existed. There probably was not one name that all the Ainu tribes had that was the same name for that island. Uh, in the case of, uh, the, uh, of the islands to the south of Kyushu, uh, Okinawa, um, maybe there was a word, but it didn't survive in historical records. What we have is the Ryukyus, the Ryukyu Archipelago. Now, Ryukyu itself is simply the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese word, the Chinese word for these islands, which was Liotio. 
Okay, um, so we have Liocho, and then the Japanese pronunciation of Liocho is Ryukyu. They're both outsider terms. They're not whatever the locals uh, who lived on these islands actually called themselves. All right, um, now the Ryukyu archipelago. Uh, contains about 140 islands or reefs. About 36 of these islands or reefs are inhabited. All right. Uh, it extends from sort of the southwestern tip of uh, Kyushu, all right, uh, where you have Satsuma. Keep in mind Satsuma. They're going to play an important role here. It extends from uh, the Satsuma daimyo uh, southwest until you reach down to Taiwan. Okay. About 700 miles long. Uh, generally from a uh, northeast to southwest axis. From the southernmost island in the Ryukyu archipelago, you can see Taiwan uh, on a clear day. Okay, It was easy to island hop as well. There was always another island that was probably in sight uh, from all the way from the north uh, down to the south. Okay, how many people lived there? Uh, guesses are, you know, uh, 200,000 to 300,000 people may have lived there prior to the 19th century or so. 125,000 uh, were on Okinawa alone. Okinawa is the largest island. All right, Okinawa is the largest island, and it's pretty much centrally located. It's at the midpoint of the 700-mile north north south uh, uh, axis orientation. Um, about 50 percent of all these people lived in just four major towns. All right, this is not uh, the hunting and, uh, 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 you know, somewhat mobile economy that we saw in Hokkaido. It's a little more settled, although, you know, fishing, of course, uh, is also a big industry down there. It's a little more settled than the Ainu were on Hokkaido. All right, um, and as we'll see, politically, it was a little more organized and a little more unified than we saw on Hokkaido as well. Uh, both then and today, Okinawa Island, the largest island at the midpoint of the Ryukyuan archipelago, is one of the most densely populated places in the world, rivaling Tokyo. This is not a good problem to have on a small island. It's the, again, opposite of Hokkaido. The only two things that really unite Hokkaido and Okinawa is the fact that they're in, uh, you know, internal others uh, within the Japanese state that they incorporated before the age of the empire. Uh, other than that, most things are pretty different. Uh, Okinawa was uh, also fairly impoverished, however, not nearly as wealthy or well-off as the three main Japanese islands. Um, and by the early 20th century, you have a 10% emigration rate. Uh, Okinawans will flee the Okinawan islands, uh, the Ryukyuan islands, in great numbers by the 20th century. Uh, many of them will end up in Hawaii. Where did the Ryukyuans come from? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> as we talk about when we get into racial ideologies next time with the Japanese as well, um, probably every single direction except for the east, which is open water. Uh, it was probably a mixing ground, just like the main Japanese islands were, for people from the Amur Basin, perhaps from Southeast Asia, uh, perhaps from the Asian mainland, and it's all impossible to untangle today, especially since we don't have records that go all that far back. Now, what is the political status? Status of Okinawa. Think of it as being between mainland China and whatever dynasty is in power over there and Satsuma, the Satsuma Daimyo on Kyushu Island in the far southwest. I remember Satsuma from our last episode, uh, one of the most powerful of the uh, 250 daimyos during the Tokugawa state. All right. Generally speaking, the relationship of the Ryukyuan kingdom was with Satsuma, uh, not with the shogun in Edo. Uh, so the Ryukyuans were a minor kingdom without a whole lot of natural resources um, that had to juggle 
and offset outside powers that were much larger and more influential than they were. Korea would find itself in a similar situation, but with a few more resources, um, you know, lodged between Japan and China. Here, uh, the Ryukyus are essentially also lodged between Japan and China. Historically, there was more Chinese cultural influence on the Ryukyus than there was Japanese influence. The educated elites would emulate Chinese models of political legitimacy. They would use the Chinese uh, calendar that was promulgated by whatever dynasty was in power. They'd say, that's our official calendar. Um, we're going to celebrate you know, these, these special days and solar events and cosmic events and all that sort of stuff. It came from China. They went with that calendar. Uh, they would adopt Chinese-style clothing, whatever was in vogue on the mainland, and that obviously changes over time, um, and Chinese architecture. Okay, um, and they would usually produce their documents in classical Chinese. Now, Japanese also produced some documents in classical Chinese, but classical Chinese was more predominant in the Ryukians than any sort of Japanese uh, 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 written influence as well. Now, uh, the Ryukyuan kingdom uh, first formed a somewhat formal tribute relationship with Satsuma in 1609. Uh, Satsuma invaded the island of Okinawa in 1609. Remember, this is just nine years after the founding of the Tokugawa state, and puts the king, the king of the Ryukyuan kingdom, under house arrest on Kyushu, brings him back to the island of Kyushu for three years, and says, we're doing this so that we can survey all of your islands for future tax tribute quotas, so we know exactly what your tribute should be. What is the real cause of all of this? Well, the Spanish are now in the Philippines. That's just to the south of Taiwan from the perspective of the Ryukyuan Islands. Uh, that's not terribly far away. Um, the Dutch are uh, also in Taiwan. All right. So you've got the Western barbarians uh, uh, encroaching, uh, getting closer and closer to the Japanese islands. You also have them on uh, just off of Nagasaki. You're getting wary of these people. Um, and when they see all of these foreign barbarians come from a distance, right around the area of the Ryukyuan archipelago, uh, they then hear that the Ryukyuan king refuses to come and pay tribute in person to the uh, daimyo head of Satsuma. That's when they decide, uh, yeah, we need to go in and assert greater control over the king and make sure he knows which side his bread is buttered on. And the Ryukyuan king, after seeing that Satsuma has the ability to invade his island, and uh, kidnap him, essentially, for three years, uh, acknowledges in writing the new relationship with Satsuma. He says, quote, pay attention to the wording of this. It's very interesting. The islands of Ryukyu have, from ancient times, been a feudal dependency of Satsuma, and we have for ages observed the custom of sending, at stated times, junks bearing products of these islands. And we have always sent messengers to carry congratulations to a new prince of Satsuma upon his, upon his accession. Note how the king has been forced to acknowledge an ancient relationship with Satsuma that goes back into the, you know, uh, the mist of time. Um, and he says, we've always paid tribute to you. Whenever there's a new prince of Satsuma, a prince, whoa, that's lofty language. I hope the shogun doesn't hear about this in Edo, that the Satsuma's uh, head is referring to himself as a prince. Um, and the relationship is with Satsuma. It's not with Edo. Okay. Um, this also gives us another parallel with what happens with uh, the Ainu and the Matsumai family. Satsuma's relationship with Okinawa is kind of similar to that economic monopoly that Matsumai had with the Ainu in Hokkaido. Of course, a little few minor differences. Uh, the Ryukians are a somewhat more unified tribute bearer. They have, they have what we would refer to as a Ryukian kingdom. You can't really refer to an Ainu kingdom. 
Um, and Satsuma often seems to be taking the lead without necessarily uh, being blessed by Edo beforehand in how they can relate uh, and interact with Okinawa. Okay, um, The Ryukyuans after 1607 then would be required to send 13% of their annual revenue as tax tribute um, to Satsuma. All right, and Satsuma would send its own commissioner to be resident in the uh, capital of Shuri. Shuri was the largest town on the largest island of Okinawa back in those days. So Satsuma then would continue to try to dictate the terms. For much of the remainder of the Tokugawa period, Satsuma would try to dictate the terms of Okinawan trade, uh, where its nobility could travel, sumptuary regulations, what sort of clothes you're allowed to wear that indicate your rank and status and political loyalty. Uh, building restrictions, what you know, what sort of palaces you're allowed to build, how tall they can be, how they uh, embody and uh, uh, project and uh, broadcast your power as we perceive it and what we've allowed you to do, uh, the rituals to ancestors that you might be allowed to practice, uh, all of these things, Satsuma is trying to treat the Ryukyuan king, um, you know, in a relationship that is very reminiscent of Matsumai with the Ainu and the Shogun with all of the Daimyo. Satsuma's relationship with the Shogun and Edo is similar now to the Ryukyuan king's relationship with Satsuma. This is all sort of should reinforce the lessons from the last podcast about the extremely decentralized nature of the Tokugawa state and how that provided a huge disincentive for Westerners to clamp down and try to exploit Japan uh, mercilessly in the same way that they did to China, thus giving it breathing rooms. Uh, breathing rooms, you know, I don't think it's plural. Breathing room. To modernize. All right, Satsuma would tell the Ryukyuan king, you guys can't conduct any foreign trade without our approval. In reality, of course, the Ryukyuans frequently traded in Southeast Asia and in China on their own initiative, and it was really hard for that one resident, uh, that one resident commissioner in Shuri on the island of Okinawa to police what everyone was doing on 140 islands. Okay. Uh, nor did Satsuma really want to prohibit, to prohibit Ryukyuan trade with China since they benefited directly as well. Remember, during the Tokugawa state, uh, there is you know, basically a blanket order prohibiting trade with the outside world. Uh, it was tough to trade with China, and if, the, uh, if Satsuma uh, uh, transgressed that boundary, they could get in big trouble. Uh, but if the Ryukyuans are trading with China, um, then you can trade with the Ryukyuans and still get access to things that come from China, which are highly valued. All right. So the strategy that both the Ryukyuans and Satsuma Daimyo would adopt is that both are trying to look the other way, while the forms of formal tribute to Beijing and Edo are upheld. Because Beijing and Edo, they, they both require the pretense of undiluted absolute loyalty and an explicit unequal hierarchy, older brother, younger brother. Okay. Um, uh, so the Ryukyuans and Satsuma let trade flourish while scrupulously maintaining the forms, the facade of all Confucian political tribute. Okay. The Chinese emperor, this is basically the, well, the Manchu emperor, uh, more or less, of the Qing dynasty, uh, will continue to confirm each new Ryukyuan king. The Ryukyuan king will send 18 embassies also in the other direction to Edo via Satsuma. Okay, so you've got trade and tribute missions that are going from the, uh, the island of Okinawa to Beijing to Satsuma and onward to Edo. Uh, Edo doesn't want to hear 
that they're doing that the Okinawans are also doing trips to Beijing. Beijing doesn't want to hear that the Ryukyuans are also doing trips to Edo. That would transgress the nature of the Confucian tribute relationship. So the trips to Edo are concealed from Beijing. The trips to Beijing are concealed from Edo. And only Satsuma and the Ryukyuans know the full story of what's going on, and they both benefit from it. This is really the only acceptable way for trade to occur without pissing off a distant big brother who has no sense of humor whatsoever. Now, let's talk about the Western impact, the Western variable. Like with the Tokugawa realm itself, the arrival of Western uh, ships will force clarity and geopolitical lines on a situation that previously was content to tolerate a significant amount of uh, uh, fuzzy gray areas. All right. Same with Hokkaido. It was the arrival of Russians that sort of uh, uh, forced the Tokugawa state to make some hard decisions and draw clear lines in the, sta- in the sand. All right. Westerners, Western ships uh, visited Okinawa regularly in the late 18th century, but they didn't really grasp the inner workings of what we might refer to as dual subordination. Right. Well, what do you mean you make tribute missions to Edo and tribute missions to Beijing and trade with both and uh, uh, hide it from the other one? Are you, are you a tributary? Do you belong to China or do you belong to Japan? Or do you belong to Satsuma? It was very confusing. They'll be similarly confused with Korea's ambiguous status as well. Korea will be talked about in pretty much the exact same way. All right, are you a are you a tributary of China, or is are you, are you a part of China? And the Westerners, with you know their 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 treaties and ambassadors and clearly delineated uh, uh, political sovereignty, uh, didn't know really how to understand these gray areas that the uh, East Asian states were willing to tolerate. This presents a new problem for Satsuma. As with the Russian presence in Hokkaido, uh, Edo is getting suspicious of Western ships stopping in the Ryukyus. This comes to a head in 1853, when Commodore Matthew Perry from the United States, on his way to Tokyo, he doesn't go via Alaska and the Aleutian Islands, and he doesn't go straight across the Pacific either. Uh, he comes from the south, and he uses the Ryukyus as a stepping stone to and from Honshu Island. So he visits the Ryukyus before he gets to Edo. And he asks them, he asks the shogun during the negotiations in 1853, he says, can you open Okinawa? Can you open this place as a treaty port? Because we'd like to do trade with them. Oddly enough, the shogun replies, the Ryukyus are a distant foreign country. It's not our decision whether or not they want to do trade with you. This response has often perplexed historians. They're like, why wouldn't they want to claim the Ryukyus as part of their territory? Uh, isn't that a win-win for, for, for the shogun in Edo? Regardless, uh, Perry, when he gets this response, he's convinced the Ryukyus are actually an, an independent country. And he says, well, hell, I'm just going to go back to the king and I'm going to sign a, a, a new compact, a new uh, you know, uh, agreement with the king that outlines our new economic relationship entirely outside of the uh, supervision of the shogun in Edo. Isn't this wonderful? And it's called the Liu Chu Compact. The Liu Chu Compact. They're using the Chinese pronunciation of the Ryukyuan Islands, not the Japanese, because they're saying, well, clearly the Japanese, this isn't even a part of China, this isn't even a part of Japan. So we'll use the Chinese pronunciation for the Ryukyuan Islands, and that's Liu Chu. So by 1854, four years before the creation of the 1858 Treaty of Amity and Commerce that we talked about in the previous episode, the Americans have already obtained uh, the right to engage in free trade 
ships uh, 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 buy ship supplies, uh, enjoy extraterritoriality, and free access to move around the islands of the Ryukyus. That's a lot of privileges. They have their own cemetery. Whenever their sailors die, they can bury them there. And they get help with anchorage whenever they want to stop and refuel their ships. One thing that historians have thought about this, because clearly uh, Edo, the shogun in Edo, didn't want this to happen. They didn't want the Americans to have such uh, preponderant influence in the Ryukyus, is that they think maybe Edo was trying to, to, to deprive Satsuma of access to foreign trade uh, via the Ryukyus. And this might make sense, because as we know, Satsuma is one of the, the most powerful daimyos, and it's one of the chief rivals uh, to the shogun in Edo. And eventually in the 1868 Meiji Restoration, the, uh, the leaders of Satsuma will play an integral role in, in overthrowing the Bakufu, overthrowing the, the Tokugawa state. Um, and so perhaps this is something where uh, uh, Edo saw an opportunity. They say, we know that the Ryukyus are very close to Satsuma, and now we need to deprive Satsuma of the resources and the influence that they get by having control over the Ryukyus. And so, you know, let, let's sort of uh, let the Americans in there to interfere with Satsuma, our rival daimyo. Again, all this just reinforces that decentralized nature of the Tokugawa state and why many of the foreigners were saying, this is a huge headache. <laughs> uh, let's go to China, beat the Chinese in a quick naval engagement and get access to China. That's so much easier than dealing with all this complex shit that we have to do when we go to Japan. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Commodore Perry comes and goes as he pleases and has mostly friendly relations with the Ryukyuns and particularly on Okinawa Island. He asks for and receives a promise uh, to send a gift of a stone block uh, to be put into the Washington Monument, which was then being built in Washington, D.C. Uh, the the uh, Ryukyuns said they sent it. Uh, apparently, it never actually arrived, got lost in transit, and a replacement stone was sent 140 years later in 1989. Uh, apparently, I've never actually, I've lived in D.C. now for, what, nine years, and I've never actually gone up to the Washington Monument, but uh, there's a stone from Okinawa somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure where it is, um, but uh, that was uh, that, that, that is reflective of the early relationship that the Americans had with Okinawa and uh, to, uh, 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 the shogun's desire to sort of split uh, the influence of some of its daimyos when the Americans came. Um, now, eventually... The rise of a faction in Satsuma that said we need to expel the barbarians was partly motivated by a desire to oust the Americans and other Westerners from the Ryukyus. Right. They probably realized what the shogun was doing and said, we need to get the Americans out of here. The Ryukyus are ours. <laughs> That's our tribute state. Um, and we don't like how Edo has authorized the Americans to come in and weaken our relationship with the Ryukyun kingdom. Okay, now the final incorporation into the Meiji state. We're almost done here, I promise. Um, there was a leading role of uh, Satsuma, uh, the Satsuma daimyo in the Meiji re Restoration. This will matter for the fate of the Ryukyun archipelago. The Satsu uh, men from Satsuma will spearhead the reform of the Tokugawa order. Uh, Satsuma, after the 1868 Meiji Restoration, they'll be the first major domain, the first major daimyo, uh, you know, the heavy hitter daimyos, to relinquish internal sovereignty of their domains to the new central government. Okay? That's what you have to do, right? The whole Meiji reform, uh, re restoration, part of it is about reorganizing the basis of political power. We can't be a decentralized government. We need a strong centralized government, and we can't have all these semi-autonomous daimyo. 
And Satsuma led by example and said, hey, we're one of the largest and most influential ones. We'll give up internal sovereignty and allow Satsuma to be turned into a prefecture. So everyone else can follow suit and follow our example. Now, it helped that the uh, uh, men from Satsuma were among the most influential members of the new government because then they could basically say, well, we can still control what's in Satsuma because we're, we're also the central government, right? The central government at, in 1868, after the overthrow of the Tokugawa, is essentially the representatives of Satsuma, Choshu, and Kyoto, who have all allied together to overthrow the Tokugawa family and the Bakufu. In exchange, see, Satsuma gets something for this. In exchange, Satsuma, the head of the clan, the Shimatsu clan, uh, is appointed governor of Satsuma and the Ryukyus. And the northernmost islands of the, of the um, Ryukyuan archipelago will be placed directly within the new Kagoshima prefecture. Satsuma's uh, daimyo, its domain today, is largely encompassed by what is known as Kagoshima Prefecture. Kagoshima Prefecture also includes the northernmost of the Ryukyuan Islands. Ah, pretty good deal for Satsuma, uh, especially when you know you dominate the central government. All right. Uh, later on, we'll see that the southern islands in the Ryukyuan Archipelago will become part of Okinawa Prefecture, but that hasn't happened yet. Now, the next step of integration occurs in 1871. There's an incident in 1871. A Ryukyuan tribute ship to Satsuma. They're still sending tribute because only the northernmost islands had been subsumed under, under, under the new Kagoshima prefecture. Uh, the Ryukyuan king is still sending tribute. He's also still sending tribute to the Chinese, uh, un, 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 unbeknownst to Tokyo. Uh, they send a tribute ship to Satsuma. That's supposed to go north. It's blown way off course and shipwrecks on Taiwan to the south, <laughs> right? 300 miles to the south instead of going 300 miles to the north. Um, now, as part of this shipwreck in 1871, 54 Ryukyuns are killed by Taiwanese aborigines, not the Chinese settlers on the western side of Taiwan, the Taiwanese aborigines uh, who are more closely related to the Polynesian peoples than they are to the Chinese. Um, 54 Ryukyun sailors who are shipwrecked are killed by Taiwanese aborigines on the eastern side of uh, Taiwan. Tokyo, which is dominated by men from Satsuma, right? They demand punishment because they say, hey, the Ryukyuns, those are our guys. But who are you going to demand punishment from? Taiwan is an outer dependency of the Qing. It's not a full province. Taiwan will not be turned into a full province until I believe it's 1885 or 1886. And that'll be a direct result of this incident. Previously, the Qing wanted to have sort of a loose reign over Taiwan. They didn't really want it. I said, this is a big hassle having this island. And so the Qing, the Qing response to Tokyo, when the Tokyo says, hey, you, you, Taiwan's yours. It's not a full province, but it's still yours. You have your own settlers on there that you tax and you send magistrates to, to, to govern these settlers on the western half of the island. Um, we want reparations from you because our men, Ryukyuns, uh, who, you know, that's a gray area too. Are they truly citizens of the new Meiji state? I, I don't know. Um, Beijing the emperor in Beijing, the Manchu emperor in Beijing says, no, 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 no. We're not paying you shit. We're only responsible for the Han farmers on the western side of the island who engage in intensive rice agriculture. We don't have the whole island. Just the western side. We just tax our people and govern them and try to prevent violence with the aborigines. The aborigines themselves, especially those on the eastern side of the island and those in the mountains who we regard as uncooked, raw savages, uh, they're not our subjects. And so we're not responsible for what they did to the Ryukyuns, who, by the way, aren't really your subjects. 
Please, okay? We know the Ryukyuns have paid tribute to China forever. <laughs> All right? Jokyo sees a golden opportunity. All right? This time, instead of disavowing sovereignty over the Ryukyuns, like they did, with, like, like the um, shogun had done in 1853 with Matthew Perry in order to divide Satsuma and the Ryukyus, this time to unite Satsuma and the Ryukyuns, Tokyo, which is basically Satsuma Choshumen, uh, claims the dead Ryukians as Japanese subjects and says, we're going to send a punitive expedition to eastern Taiwan, which China says it doesn't control. And they do. And they chase around the Aborigines, kill a few of them for a few weeks and say, good, we enacted our revenge on the Aborigines who uh, killed our Ryukian subjects. And it's this event that makes Beijing, the Qing dynasty, diplomats realize what's at stake. And they say, ah, now I see what Japan's doing. Very clever diplomacy, guys. And they say, we need to claim all of Taiwan as quick as possible, or Tokyo is going to have a pretext to take over not just the Ryukyus, they're going to take over Taiwan as well. And so they say, all right, actually, we were wrong. Taiwan is all of ours, and uh, we will pay you an indemnity for the actions of our subjects, those Aborigines. Um, and eventually, uh, this kickstarts the process of turning Taiwan into a formal province, just like all the other provinces on the, on the uh, Chinese mainland. Um, and it'll become a province about 15 years later or so after this incident. Bureaucratic paperwork takes a long time, so that's why it's not immediate. Um, and uh, the irony of all this, we have, we're going to get into all this in great detail, is that uh, Taiwan then will only be a province for another 10 years. Because after it becomes a province in the mid-1880s, uh, the Qing dynasty is going to lose it in the mid-1890s. And irony of all ironies, they're going to lose it to Japan, who they tried to prevent losing it to earlier. All right. Now, um, Vigorous debate ensues in Tokyo. Are we going to let the Ryukyus remain under this vague Satsuma, now Kagoshima prefecture orbit? Or are we going to annex the entire Ryukyus to Tokyo? All right, because only part of the islands in the north are part of Kagoshima and the rest are, are not. Um, so in 1872, just a year after the incident in Taiwan, the Tokyo informs the Ryukyuan king that his kingdom is now a domain. He's given a stipend, like a daimyo. He's given a stipend. Residents in Tokyo, in order to hand over all his government seals and all foreign treaties that he has previously signed. All previous uh, arrangements with Satsuma are abolished. New tax expectations are calculated based on national standards throughout all the rest of the Japanese islands. Um, and the Ryukyun Han, the domain, uh, adopts a Western calendar, the same Western calendar that the new Meiji state has adopted. You're not using that Chinese calendar anymore. All right. Um, after this, Tokyo is dismayed to find out that the very next year, a Ryukyuan delegation still shows up in Beijing. And Tokyo says, what? We just told them that they don't exist anymore. You can't be going as an independent state uh, and negotiating with the, with, with the Qing emperor in Beijing. The Ryukyuans clearly are making a last gasp attempt to gain diplomatic uh, recognition from some power. Sort of like Taiwan today, right? <laughs> uh, who's going to help us out in the face of these huge behemoths who claim us? Um, and uh, their last gasp comes in 1878. The Ryukyuans uh, send a secret petition to the emperor, the, Chinese, the, the Qing dynasty emperor in Beijing, uh, which prompts Tokyo to institute a passport system. It says, never again can you leave any of the Ryukyuan islands without Tokyo approved papers in hands. If you do, you will be arrested and you will be punished because we claim the entire Ryukyuan islands now. No more gray areas. 
The denouement comes finally in 1879. U.S. President Ulysses Grant undertakes a world tour with a stop in Beijing. Tokyo fears that China is going to use President Grant's visit to, Be to Beijing as an opportunity to pull him in to the dispute with over the Ryukyus. So before Grant's arrival in Beijing, the Meiji government, Japan, abolishes that new Ryukyu domain and says, all right, it's going to be a full-style prefecture, just like Kagoshima Prefecture and every other pre prefecture that we have now, sort of the equivalent to a province in China or a state in the United States. Um, and he says, okay, it's going to be now Okinawa-ken, Okinawa Prefecture, 1879. The Ryukyuan king is no longer a privileged king with his own domain. Uh, he is deposed and forced into exile in Tokyo with no political power whatsoever. All right. This, finally, is the end of the Ryukyuan kingdom and any sort of vague autonomy that it had and its ability to play off one power over another. All right. The king has a face-saving measure as he goes into exile in Tokyo, tells his advisors and closest subjects that he had met with the, uh, with, 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 with the emperor in China, and the emperor in Beijing said that China had too many troubles of its own to look after, and they said, you should become a part of Japan. Uh, Japan can look after you now. Everyone's saving face on all sides. The reality is that Japan has won. The new Meiji state, dominated by Satsuma and Choshumen, uh, has won. And the northern part of the uh, Ryukyuan Islands are part of Satsuma's old domain, now Kagoshima Prefecture, um, and even the rest of the Ryukyuans, all the way down to the northern tip of Taiwan, are now part of Okinawa Prefecture, uh, directly re uh, responsible to the central government in Tokyo. And China, of course, is getting its own face-saving measures here by saying, you know, we, 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 we gave our permission for you to go another way because we can't look after you anymore. Uh, all these things have a legacy today uh, when you hear about uh, these uh, historical claims that China and Japan like to make about who owns various islands in the South Seas and all this sort of stuff. Um, the, the, these sorts of facts come into play and they get manipulated by all sides um, and disputes over who the, the Ryukyuan kingdom actually sent tribute to in this year or that year, uh, whether Japan took it over lawfully, you know, whatever, uh, this stuff will be uh, seized upon by whatever, uh, by, the, by the various sides, and they'll just take whatever evidence supports their side. Uh, as a historian, of course, uh, we're, 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 we're getting the full enchilada. We're getting all the messy details, and you realize that it's very, it's very confusing, it's very complex, and uh, they were, you know, the Ryukyuans were playing all sides off of another in a bid to remain as autonomous as possible until that was no longer possible, and it becomes a part of Japan. Uh, most things in history are like this when you uh, lift up the surface and begin to look at all the details. Uh, it becomes very hard to make uh, emphatic unilateral statements anymore about, oh, this was ours since time immemorial, or we were independent since time immemorial. Uh, it's never that simple. After this, after 1879, it becomes a prefecture. Okinawa is gradually assimilated and turned into a colonial-style export colony that produces largely one commodity for one market, sugar for the Japanese home islands. Okay, um, and that it'll be a monoculture agricultural economy in which you produce sugar for Honshu, Kyushu, Shikoku. Um, and the Japanese who live there. Uh, Japan's modernization, by and large, will not benefit overcrowded Okinawa, and mass emigration ensues soon after it becomes a prefecture. Those that remain in Okinawa on any of the islands will uh, attain a stigma of rustic country bumpkins in what is regarded as the most backward, poorest region of Japan. 
And, uh, you know, their language was different. It, it, it wasn't the Japanese that was spoken on Honshu, Kyushu, or Shikoku. Um, and Japanese who go there will uh, be shocked uh, to, to realize how different the language is. Um, and they'll say, you know, these are rustic bar- uh, country barbarians um, who live here. Unlike with Hokkaido, however, Okinawa still has a lot more drama to come. A pivotal war in World War II. Uh, the U.S. occupation... And then, of course, how could we possibly forget, most importantly, it's the home of Mr. Miyagi in the original Karate Kid. Uh, remember that? They wanted to put it in Okinawa so they could have American influence, the American military bases and whatnot. Anyways, uh, we're done with internal alien others. And next time, we're going to turn our attention to racial ideologies in the Japanese empire. All right. If you uh, don't like gray areas, then you're going to have to skip our next episode because there's a lot of gray areas when you start talking about race and realize that race is something that we invent in our mind. Um, We're going to take on the concept of the uh, oft-vaunted Yamato race, and we're going to uncover some surprising revelations. Was the Yamato race pure blood or mongrel? Or is it all just a figment of our imagination? Uh, these are our questions that we're going to explore in episode 44 of Beyond Wasya. 